In the sermon today, we are talking about the fruit of joy. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance. I'm sorry, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is one of those very famous passages that we love to read and recite and memorize. And it's so important to think about this fruit of the Spirit. But what does it mean that it's called the fruit of the Spirit? And why is joy a part of it? This is part seven of our Joy in Christ sermon series. As we are in the time of this pandemic, and now as we look at the strife in our culture, again, we need to understand what a Christ-rooted joy is, what a Christian joy is, what it means to have joy through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not a joy that ignores the problem of this world. Far from it. It is a joy that looks at the problems of this world and realizes we have a God, we have a Savior that is sovereign over those things, at work in those things, and at work in us through and in those things. So we have a hope rooted in, anchored in, and a joy rooted in and anchored in something outside of the situations of this world. And so we're going to be looking at what does it mean that joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And in order to look at this, we need to first look at what is the fruit of the Spirit. What is Paul talking about when he says the fruit of the Spirit? And let's start with Spirit. What does it mean that it is the fruit of the Spirit? The Holy Spirit is what Paul is talking about here. The Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is the presence of God. It's when God is in us, when God is with us, that is the Holy Spirit's work in us. So the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the presence of God as one of the three persons of the Trinity. Wherever God is, obviously God's there. Wherever Jesus Christ is, he's Emmanuel, God with us. But when we come to the Holy Spirit, sometimes it's easy to forget that and realize wherever the Holy Spirit is, the presence of God is there as well. Throughout Scripture, God shows up in amazing ways. In the Old Testament, we have this incredible example of God establishing a relationship with his people, Israel, through Abraham. And God then, as his people are They go off to Egypt and they become enslaved. God saves them out of Egypt. He provides then a way through the sacrificial system for sin to be dealt with, though not perfectly and not completely. And all of this is so that God can be with them, so that he can be with his people. And we see this emphasis on God's presence with his people in the tabernacle. The book of Exodus talks about not only the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt, but then the giving of the law. And a huge part of that in the book of Exodus is how to set up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a a tent structure, a mobile building that could be set up and torn down as the Israelites journeyed throughout the wilderness. But it was a place where God's presence would dwell with them and where they could worship him. It was like a, a mobile temple that could be picked up and carried around. And God told them in Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 to 46, his purpose for the tabernacle. He says, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so 
in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, as God's people looked over and saw the tabernacle, they could say, there's our God. He is with us. And Exodus records that God's presence would go before them and it would stop over a place. And when it would stop, they would set up their camp, including the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord would descend upon the tabernacle and fill it. And if in the morning when they got up, the glory of the Lord had departed the tabernacle and moved on, they would pack up their belongings and they would follow God. And I love this precedent that is set in the Old Testament, especially in the tabernacle, that God's people followed God's presence. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we don't see a sacrificial system anymore. There's a little bit about the temple early on in the Gospels, but really its importance disappears throughout the letters of Paul because something has drastically changed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and died on the cross in our place. He is the sacrifice for our sins perfectly once for all. Also, we have this shifting of the presence of God away from a tabernacle or eventually the temple. And now the presence of God is among his people. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And here you see the Trinity working all together. You have the spirit who is also called the Spirit of God and also called the Spirit of Christ. All three persons of the Trinity are referenced together. But what Paul is saying is, you are uh, you are not in the realm of the fresh flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So now he's saying, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Now, the corollary is equally true. If you do belong to Christ, you must have the Holy Spirit. You do have the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches over and over again, when you become a Christian, because your sins are taken away by Jesus Christ, paid for by him on the cross, you are made holy. God puts his presence, the Holy Spirit, in us, lives among us. We are the tabernacle now. And God's glorious presence never leaves us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This means that wherever we are as Christians, God is with us. His presence is in us. God's presence throughout Scripture makes a difference in God's people. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, we read, You are to be holy to me, God's talking to the Israelites, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Now, This is God telling them, hey, you need to live different. But look at why he says they need to live different. He says, because I have set you apart. And that's interesting because the word holy literally means to be set apart. So he says, you should be holy. You need to be holy because I have made you holy. You need to set yourselves apart and live holy because I have set you apart and made you holy. Throughout scripture, it is God's presence that changes God's people. It's not that God was telling the Israelites, you need to live up to this standard. And if you do, then I will be with you. No, he's saying, I am with you. Now live that difference that I am making in you. God's presence makes a difference in God's people. Now part of the difference that he makes 
is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23, this fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It's what God, the Holy Spirit, is doing in us. He is making us loving, joyous, peaceful, forbearing. He is making us kind and good and faithful and gentle and giving us self-control. This is what God is doing in us. He is producing this fruit in us. But before we look at joy as a part of the fruit of the Spirit, I want to be first look at the seedling of sorrow. And this might seem really odd, but before we can get to our fruit of joy in our life through Jesus Christ, I believe it's crucial. And I think in our modern society and modern Christianity, we are jumping over this important part. Now, I need to admit here, I'm not a gardener. I'm really good at killing plants, whether they're inside or outside. So take everything I say with a grain of salt and look it up for yourself. But my understanding is that when a seed is planted in the ground, you know, an inch, two inch, whatever it is, down under the ground, that when it begins to grow, a shoot comes down that turns into the root system and it begins to draw up nourishment from the soil. And then another shoot begins to work its way up through the soil to pop out the soil and turn into what we see as the plant. That shoot has to struggle to the surface. It has to push against the soil that is over it. And it is dirty and harsh work, but it is all part of the growth that must take place in order to get to the fruit that will be developed from the life of the plant. And I believe there's an important corresponding stage in our Christian development. On the way to the fruit of joy, we need to not skip over this seedling of sorrow You see, when we get a taste or a glimpse of God's presence in our life, when we come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, his light shines into us and we behold his glory and we read about who he is and his holiness. And correspondingly, then we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, I am not worthy. I am a sinner. He is holy and I am a sinner. And this can lead to an appropriate sorrow. You see, at first, this won't be experienced as joy. We can often think, who am I? Who am I that God can accept me? Who am I that Jesus Christ should die for me? Who am I that that the holy presence of the Lord Most High would come into my life? Who am I? And the Bible calls this an admission of sin, a recognition of sin. And then the appropriate response is repentance to identify our sin, to say it is sinful, to say that it is wrong, and to repent from, to apologize to God, to recognize it is wrong, and to turn away from. These are not things that lead to salvation. They are the product of salvation. It is the outflow of God's work in our lives. But here's the problem. I think there is a huge trend among Christians today to skip over this. We want to present a gospel without the sorrow, without the sin, without repentance, without looking with these things. We want to skip over that and say, God just loves you. And he just loves you. 
And that's really the end of the gospel. He just loves you. And he just wants to give you great things. He wants to bless you. He wants to shower you with blessings and with health and with wealth and with miracles. And we skip over God dealing with our sin. I want to recommend to you something that my family watched this past week. I think it's something new on Netflix. If you have Netflix, I highly recommend this. If you don't, I'm not sure you can see it anywhere else, but it's a documentary and it's called The American Gospel. And it does two things really, really well. The first is it gives an incredible gospel presentation, biblical, Christ-centered, amazing gospel presentation throughout the whole thing. The second thing it does really, really well is it shows the absolute complete emptiness and hopelessness of the prosperity gospel that is growing in acceptance throughout the United States and around the world. The prosperity gospel says God just loves you and he just wants to bless you. He just wants to bring you joy and happiness and give you all these wonderful gifts. And that's just all he wants to do and miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And it skips over any aspect of sin, any aspect of Jesus Christ dying to save us from our sins. It skips over all of that and just wants to go from, you don't know God, well now you do and he loves you and everything is fine. It is a gospel that is no gospel at all. And in order to truly understand the fruit of joy, We need to understand this seedling of sorrowful repentance. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine someone who is an alcoholic, but they're at that stage where they think they're okay. They think they're fine. They've got it under control. It's it's okay. They, They are able to control the drinking in their life and their family and their friends are saying, no, you have a problem. Now imagine that person maybe to try to keep their loved ones happy, decides to go into rehab. And in rehab, they go through the steps and the process and and they have to sober up and they have to dry out and they're going through the withdrawal pains and the struggles of alcohol. Now remember, they thought they were fine and now they are suffering. And let's imagine they even get through the rehab and they come out and they're okay, you graduated and they're trying to live a sober life, but they're saying this is hard. It doesn't always feel good. I I miss the times that it felt better when I was drinking. So they thought they were fine and then they experienced suffering and they're saying, "I, I want to be back there. That was better because they didn't have a clear picture of who they were and what they were going through. Now contrast that with someone that hits rock bottom. They know they're out of control. They begin to see the hurt that they're causing in their own life and the hopelessness that they have reached and the hurt that they're causing in the lives of those around them, especially their loved ones. And imagine they go into rehab. And the difficulty comes, the struggle of getting sober. But now instead of thinking, I was fine and now I'm suffering, they're saying, I was lost and now I'm healing. And yes, there's pain along that way. There's a struggle along that way, but it is leading to something better. And they come out of rehab and they go through those times of feeling that withdrawal, but they're saying, I know where I was. I know where that leads and I don't want to go there anymore. It's the same way with our sin. 
Scripture over and over and over again emphasizes the truth that apart from Jesus Christ, we are sinners. Paul's doing this in Ephesians chapter 2. He's going to give an amazing overview of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but this is where he starts. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Our modern world doesn't want to hear that. Prosperity gospel doesn't want to talk about that. You weren't dead. You weren't a transgressor. You weren't sinful. You just lacked blessing. Paul's saying, no, you were lost. You were dead. But then he goes on in verses four and five. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. This is not God coming into our lives to make it incrementally better, to just bring blessings and joy. This is God saying, you were lost and dead, and I've saved you and made you alive through Jesus Christ. Acknowledging our sin and having a proper perspective and recognition that apart from Christ, we are sinners Showing that proper sorrow and repentance is part of the Spirit's work in our lives that leads to true joy. If we just skip over this, if we neglect this truth in our life, I think we will always have a more shallow joy, a manufactured, man-made joy. God's presence, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives. And not only do we get a better picture of who God is, but we get a better picture of who we are in our own sinful state. But we also get the gospel that says Jesus took our sin, paid the price, and set us free. Much like a a seedling pushing through the dirt to the surface, the Holy Spirit works in us to bring a recognition properly of our sin and to prompt us to godly sorrow and repentance so that the Holy Spirit can continue to work to bear fruit, the fruit of joy in our lives. So let's look at this fruit of joy. What is it that Paul's talking about when he lists joy as part of the fruit of the Spirit? Let's look again at Galatians 5, 22 to 23 as the fruit of the Spirit here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we need to understand that term fruit of the Spirit. We talked about the Spirit as God's presence in our lives. But what does it mean that it is the fruit of the Spirit? It's not the fruit of the Christian. Too many believers have taken this list by Paul, the fruit of the Spirit, and turned it into the Christian checklist. This is our to-do list as a Christian. Be more loving. Be more joyous. Be more peaceable. Be more forbearing. Be more kind. And it just is like this, this new list of laws on our wall that we have to live up to. And then we go through difficulties. And we say, I'm not feeling joyful. I'm not feeling loving. I'm not working for peace that I should. And and so I have fallen short and I'm not producing the fruit that I should be producing. And do you see the problem there? Paul's not saying this is the fruit we produce. He says it's the fruit the Spirit produces in us. 
This is like a checklist that the Holy Spirit writes down and he says, here's my to-do list for you. This is what I am doing. These are my projects for your life and I am working on them in you. I am making you more loving. I am making you more joyous. I am making you more peaceful. I am doing these things in your life and I want you to see them and to be aware of them because I promise I am doing them in you. So what's our response? Well, we need to trust this. This is a promise from God that his presence will do these things in our lives. And we need to trust that. And then we need to live them out from trust. That's what Christian obedience is. It's saying God is doing this in me so I can knowingly, trustfully live it out in my life. Now, joy is a part of this spirit-produced fruit. It's interesting, Paul says it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, plural. This is one fruit of what the presence of God does in us. And, and Paul helpfully describes some aspects of that fruit, and part of that is joy. And we're not going to look at the others or look at the totality of the fruit, but why joy? Why is joy part of the fruit of the Spirit? Now understand that the fruit of the Spirit is not some separate gift that God gives to us. It's not some separate thing that he comes in and says, hey, I've given you salvation. Now I'm also going to give you this. And this is another blessing and another blessing. No, he comes in and he says, I'm giving you the greatest gift of all. I'm giving you myself, my presence, just like in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, but even better because now we're saved by Jesus Christ and his presence lives within us. There's the blessing. The blessing is the presence of God, period, full stop. That's the blessing. Everything else comes out of that blessing. When God is with us, we will know love and show love. We will know peace and live peace. We will know joy and live joy. Look at what Jesus says in John 15, 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. Do you see that there? What is the joy that we have as Christians? It's not our own manufactured, happy-go-lucky joy. I'm looking at the world and just ignoring it because I'm so focused on spiritual things. No, it's our joy of knowing it's Jesus Christ in us. And his joy, accomplished by him, based on what he has done for us through the gospel, that's the joy that's in us. So why? Why is joy part of the fruit of the Spirit? And what is this joy that is a fruit of the Spirit or part of the fruit? To understand this, we need to understand the concept throughout Scripture of two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms always going on. We live in the kingdom of this world. It is a kingdom where there are riots, where there is racism, where there is injustice, where there is sin played out on the canvas of history. And that is the kingdom of this world, a kingdom that rejected God all the way back in the Garden of Eden, set itself up against God. It runs throughout Scripture and it comes to its conclusion in the book of Revelation. That's the kingdom of this world. There is also the kingdom of our Lord. And it's the kingdom that he created us to live in, though we rejected it. 
It's the kingdom that he comes to Abraham and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the kingdom that is glimpsed of or glimpsed, uh, we get a glimpse of through Israel in the Old Testament when God lives among them. It's the kingdom that Jesus Christ comes and when he does miracles and he loves the least of these, he is displaying a kingdom different than this world. It's the kingdom that he's inviting the apostles into when he says, come, come, follow me. It's the kingdom that Paul talks about when he says we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. It's the kingdom we talked about last week when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We are born into this new kingdom through Jesus Christ. Two kingdoms. And the fruit of the Spirit is evidence. And it's the work of God in our hearts as a part of this new kingdom, the Lord's kingdom through Jesus Christ. Do you remember what I said about sorrow and repentance and the necessity of, of sorrow, godly sorrow and godly repentance in order to lead to joy? Our understanding of sin and our attitude towards sin is part of God's revealing work in our lives to pull back the curtain on the world and the kingdom of this world that we used to live in so we see it for what it really is. It's not a pretty sight. And it's hard because it challenges so many things we consider normal and natural and things that we even desire in our own lives as sinners. But then we look at the new kingdom of Christ. This new kingdom that we are called into, that that we are risen to new life in through Jesus Christ, that we are born again into through Jesus Christ, these things that we didn't accomplish, but Jesus did for us through the gospel. And in this kingdom, Christ's work is being done. In God's kingdom, our salvation is already accomplished. In God's kingdom, our future is secure. So you want to know why joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit? It's because God's kingdom never fails. And where God's presence is, God's kingdom will conquer and reign forever. That's our joy. A joy that doesn't depend upon the circumstances of our lives or the circumstances of this world, but depends on the eternal truth of the kingdom of God accomplished through Jesus Christ and promised for all eternity. And because it doesn't depend upon the situations of this world, the fruit of joy is not dependent upon the circumstances of our lives. In fact, the Bible says the fruit of joy runs through Every circumstance. James says it this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Why can we consider it joy when we go through trials? Because we know that the trials are a part of this world. And this world is not our home. We have a better and lasting kingdom. And because we know that God is at work in the trials that we are facing in this world, shaping us, refining us, purifying us, making us holy, so that which we experience as a trial, he is using as a blessing. We know that God is with us and accomplishing his purposes in and through us. There's a beautiful but difficult passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And the author says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after they had become a Christian, 
When you endured in great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And here the author is saying, for some of you, when you first became a Christian, you were persecuted. A lot of us in the modern church, especially in the United States, we don't experience this, but our brothers and sisters around the world and in other cultures do. The moment they proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are looked down on, they are persecuted, sometimes physically so. He says you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. But then he takes it a step further. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So here he's saying not only were you persecuted individually, but you saw your brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted and you chose, rather than staying separate from them, you chose to join them, to be identified with them, to stand up and say, I'm with them. And sometimes the way this happened, it says you suffered along with those in prison. In that culture, when someone was in prison, the prison didn't pay for the food. The prison didn't pay for their upkeep. They had to get that on their own. Family members had to come in and provide food. Loved ones had to come in. And so if you were a Christian in prison and your family had rejected you, you depended upon your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But what happens? What happens when you go to the prison to visit your brother or sister in Christ? What happens to the people that see you on the street going in and out of that prison and they find out who you went to? What happens with the guards that whisper in the hallways or in their families or in the streets and they say, so-and-so went to see that Christian? He or she must be one of them. In fact, one commentator pointed out that the way this is written It is very possible that when the author of Hebrews says, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, that it was because they went to see those in prison. By going to prison and seeing their brother and sister in Christ and caring for them, they were standing up and saying, I'm a Christian too. And it's possible when they got back home, their homes had already been raided. and Their property had already been confiscated. And so you could imagine as a Christian in this situation, they would be very fearful. They would be full of anxiety. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can live through this. And what does the author of Hebrews say? No. He says, you joyfully accepted this. How can a Christian joyfully accept persecution, joyfully accept the loss of earthly goods? How? The author says at the end of verse 34, because you knew, you knew that you yourselves had better lasting possessions. That's the joy of the Holy Spirit right there. That's the fruit of God's presence in our lives through salvation. To be able to look at the world and the stuff of this world and say, Take it all because I've got all I need because my God is with me. This is the fruit of the Spirit. When our greatest possession through Jesus Christ is God's presence in us, the Holy Spirit, 
what was our greatest problem, our sin, has been paid for by Christ. And what is our greatest hope to live in the presence of God forever is assured in Jesus Christ. When Christ is our greatest possession and our greatest problem has become or has been overcome and our greatest hope is secured through Jesus Christ, when all of those things are true, what would be the fruit of that? Joy. Joy. No matter what may be going on in our lives in that moment, the fruit of the presence of God in our life is joy. We can have joy because of the promise of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. James says it this way, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. See, here's part of the perspective of God's presence at work in our lives. When God is with us, he is never wasting one moment of what we are going through. He is taking those things, those trials, many kinds, and he is working in us to refine our faith, to strengthen us, to develop perseverance. And so James says, let him. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And there's part of the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit. To be able to look at the problems and the situations of our lives and say, I know my Lord God is at work. I know he is accomplishing something through this that I don't see right now, but I know it is true. There is a fruit that he is bringing out of this situation. Because of that, I will have joy. I will have joy. If you are a Christian, listen to this truth from Scripture. The Holy Spirit, God's perfect, glorious, righteous presence is in you. It's in you. Just like the tabernacle, just like the temple The Holy Spirit is in you always. God is present with you always. And just one slice, just one part of his work, there's so much we could look at, but just one part is joy. So when you're struggling and you're not feeling that joy, declare it as a promise from God that through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you And the Holy Spirit produces joy in you and through you. You know, an apple tree, if it's any good at all, is going to produce apples. That's what it does. The Holy Spirit is perfect and powerful, and he will produce the fruit that he is working on in your life. And Paul tells us that part of the fruit that the Holy Spirit is working on is joy. So how much more so can we trust that the Holy Spirit will produce joy in our lives? So our response then is to trust. Say, I don't feel it. I maybe don't see it, but I'm going to speak the truth from God's word that the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit is producing joy in me and I will trust that no matter what happens.
we need to remind ourselves of this work. We need to remind ourselves of this fruit that the Holy Spirit is working on. Then we step out in obedience. Obedience is an act of faith based on what God promises to do. Obedience is not our acting so that God will do something. It is a recognition God has done something, is doing something, and we're going to trust that and live it out in our lives. We don't create the fruit. We just trust it and live it out. And so I pray for each and every one of you right now. First of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ, understand that there is a whole kingdom that God wants to show to you. A kingdom that, yes, is full of blessing and life and hope and joy. But it starts with coming to know Jesus Christ. To understand that we are sinners and lost and rebels against God. But that through Christ, the Son of God, we can be saved. And then his presence, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives. And he begins working on us from the inside out. And part of what he produces is joy. If you want to know the joy that we're talking about in here, then come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then Christian, I know many of you watching this are struggling. I know it's a hard time to have joy. We focus on the wrong things. We get caught up in the wrong things. We start thinking that the weight of the world is on us to produce the fruit that God has called us to do. And it's all backwards. And God is saying, no, I'm doing it in you. I'm already at work. Trust me. Trust the joy that the Holy Spirit is producing in you. And if you're struggling with that, go to the promises of Scripture. Read the book of Ephesians about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Read the book of Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Understand where it's coming from, that it's not us doing it, but God doing it in us. The fruit of the Spirit. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And I pray that we would, in our own lives, hold on to the fruit of joy. That we would demonstrate the fruit of joy for a watching world to see. Let's pray. Father, it's hard when so much is going on to talk about joy. And yet as we look at the times of the New Testament, the things that Paul went through, the things that the people were going through that he wrote to, they were experiencing Difficult times as well, sometimes way worse than what we're seeing in our world here. And yet he said they can have the fruit of joy in their lives. And so, Father, when everything seems to be falling apart, may we cling to this truth that through Jesus Christ and the salvation in him, your presence is in us and the Holy Spirit is doing works in us we cannot do on our own. And one amazing part of that work is that he is producing joy. May we trust that joy and live that joy and share that joy with others because this world so desperately needs it right now and always. And so we cling to the joy that is ours through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.